And here in Genesis 27, we'll start reading right at the beginning of the chapter and continue through the 41st verse. Although my message, Lord willing, is going to cover just a little bit more than that um, for our text, our reading of the text. We'll just cover those 41 verses. And I encourage you to read along with me. This, I recognize, is a little bit on the long side. But read along with me. And as we're reading, I want you to try to pick out, and I'll probably help you along the way, but pick out where the major conversations start and stop because this text actually has a lot more conversations going on than most that we see in Genesis. Most there's like one set of people talking through the whole chapter. This there's multiple. So I'll try to point those out. Pay close attention to everything as you're able. This is the word of God. Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son. So this is the first conversation. And said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. And bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock. Bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and shall seem to be, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went, and took them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she'd prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. 
Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. He has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him Lord over you. All his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This is the word of God. Would you all pray with me? Dear Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people and the many kind providences you give to us, the many ways you demonstrate to us your love. We don't deserve these, Lord, but we thank you for Jesus who earned them for us. And Father, I ask as I step into this position of declaring your word, I pray that you would protect the words I say, that you would guard my lips, that I would speak only your words. May no one leave today discouraged or crushed by more law without seeing the gospel and the grace that you provide and have provided in Christ. Quiet, Father, quiet our hearts, and bless our hearts with your presence, we ask. 
This is all in the name of and because of Christ's work we ask. Amen. Perfect family. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. Because remember where we live? We live in the in-between. Somewhere between the cross and the consummation. Between where the debt for our sin was paid and where sin will be fully removed from our experience. And because of that, there is no perfect family. And I don't bring this up to lead you to despair, to think that there is no hope, but to cause you to hope in the redemption that is being accomplished even right now through the power that Christ provides. I think that within families, we can experience both some of the greatest joys and some of the greatest pain of our lives on earth. Within families, we can experience some of the greatest joys. I remember meeting our daughter for the first time. That was a great moment in my life. And many more followed it. Meeting my wife for the first time, too. I shouldn't leave that out. That was, that was great, too. Anytime, though, that you are that close, and I'm speaking of in a family, that close to fellow members of fallen humanity, our sinfulness can break down those relationships, can start to tear away at the closeness, can start to put up walls between individuals, and in addition to that, we, we don't pick our families. That sounds sort of cliche, but it's very, very true. We don't choose who is in our family. But we are called to glorify God, 1 Corinthians 10.31, in every aspect of our lives. Whether it's eating or drinking or everything else, we're to do it to God's glory, to bring him praise. So that includes our families. We are to live together as a way of rooting out the sin that bubbles to the surface through these close relationships. So today in talking about families, other than having been a part of one for all of my life, I recognize that I am not an expert in speaking on this. I haven't been blessed yet to parent a teenager. I've heard that's challenging. Our daughter isn't even four yet, and she actually made her presence well-known this morning, so you can see that I'm not an expert. And I recognize that I have also made plenty of mistakes due to inexperience, due to sin that God is still working out of me. So this is an area I pray that God continues to grow me by his grace, that God would make me a better husband, a better dad, and even a better son that he would use this church family to do that work in me and in all of us. But I pray that even with that truth, that I'm not an expert in this, I pray that God's word is clearly coming through this morning. God's truth is what we look to, much more than any of my opinions about families. But today we are going to talk about Dysfunctional families. I've titled the message, God's Grace for Dysfunctional Families. The word dysfunction is one we may hear occasionally, but it's probably not 
a super well-known word, so I, I thought, or someone actually told me, I should define it. I'd hate to teach all about dysfunction and someone leave and have to go look it up to figure out what it means. That, that's the kind of thing that keeps preachers awake at night. So for starters, let's just start with Webster's definition of what dysfunction is. Webster in Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives two definitions. The first is impaired or abnormal functioning, as in gastrointestinal dysfunction is the example it gives. That's great to think about. The second example they give is actually probably more appropriate for today. Abnormal or unhealthy interpersonal behavior or interaction within a group. So dysfunction is abnormal or unhealthy interpersonal behavior or interaction within a group. So basically it means to not function as designed or intended. And even that that root of, actually it's not a root, it's the prefix, root of dysfunction. Dis shows up in some other words, not like I'm dissing you, but it shows up in other words like dyslexia. It's where the words appear abnormal or dystopia, maybe less familiar, or dyspepsia. If you look at a bottle of Pepto-Bismol, dyspepsia is on there. It basically means your Pepsia is abnormal. I'm not sure. But basically, dysfunction means in a family to not be functioning as God designed. So I'm not, I'm not trying to look primarily at the results of dysfunction. Some of the long-term results of dysfunction might be teenage pregnancy or broken families. That's not what we're looking at today. Today we're looking at the breakdown in God's created order that may long-term lead to those types of things that may end up there. Because when God created the first family in Genesis chapter 2, he had a very clear order and purpose for that first family. And then the fall into sin took place in the next chapter. By chapter 4, you already have brothers, one brother killing his other brother. So there's obvious dysfunction that happened very quickly after the fall, and it continues today. There are many kinds of dysfunction we can consider, and maybe God is going to put his finger on something different in each one of our hearts, each one of our lives, But here's a non-exhaustive list, things that I want you to consider as possibly being dysfunction in your life. And pray, even as I'm going through these, pray that God points out something to you that can kind of be part of what you're thinking and what God is working in your heart on. A possible place of dysfunction within a family is where there is bad or possibly no communication between family members. Where there's mistrust, a lack of openness or transparency. Everyone is hiding something. When there's not talking about problems, but a problem comes up and it's swept under the rug or ignored. Maybe everyone knows there's a big elephant in the room and no one wants to talk about it. Dysfunction may be to extend the place of leadership beyond God's plan for headship under God. Or it could be the inverse. It could be a dad not leading and the children and the wife suffering. It could be a husband not leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. It may be the case that kids are being put first in a family. Beyond seeing children as part of God's calling as a parent, we elevate them to the authority in our family. It could be a husband just doing whatever keeps his wife happy and not leading in the home. 
or parents being harsh with their children or having children that despise their parents' authority. It could be two parents not being on the same page in their parenting, perhaps even with very different worldviews as to how they parent their children. For the kids here, it could be sibling rivalry. Let me define that for you. That's when you and your brother or sister fight a lot. There's competition between you. Maybe you're, you're competing for your parents' favor. And really, in church family relationships, many of these same things can come up. There can be difficulties in a church family when certain areas are off limits to talk about. Everyone just kind of ignores those problems. There can be situations where someone in a family is financially dependent on their parents due to laziness. It could be the parents holding on to their children very tightly or feeding dependence in their children through buying them stuff to keep them happy, etc. I'm sure you can think of others. This, this list could go on and on. But I want us to be thinking and praying that God, by his spirit, would put his finger on something. And I have two goals for this message. Two goals. That God would use this inspired retelling of a dysfunctional family in scripture to reveal to us areas of dysfunction in our lives and our families. And two, my second goal is that God would open our eyes to the grace he provided in the midst of their dysfunction. Because even though it may not be obvious from reading through that text, you, you might think what you just read, Josh, seems really messed up. There were problems. They were lying. They were going behind each other's back. How is there grace in that? I want us to see that today, but also that there is abundant grace for our dysfunction, for our brokenness, for our sinful patterns because of Jesus. So with that as our introduction, I want us to see in today's text, my first point, the patterns of dysfunction. The patterns of dysfunction. And I mentioned it earlier, but our problems in relationship, our problems in family, are results of the fall. God created us to function in relationship with each other in a certain particular way. The family had a perfect order under God's headship, but because of the fall, these relationships were broken. In Genesis 3.16 that we covered several months back, God pointed out that because of Adam and Eve's sin, that the wife's desire would be against her husband's God-given role, and that he at the same time would try to sinfully lord over his wife. Also, even though there were no children at that point, the parent-child relationship, the child-child relationship, all of these were damaged through sin as well. And this is what the rest of mankind would deal with because of the fall. This is what we still deal with today in our day-to-day -day interactions in our families, in our homes. And we see it in our text. Let's start with a quick walkthrough of the text. So we have an aging Isaac in the first verse. He's aging, and he calls his older son to him, and he says, I want to bless you. Now, this is important because he doesn't call the whole family together and say, I'm going to issue my blessing now. He privately calls Esau into his bedroom and says, go and get me some food that I like, feed my appetites, and I'm going to give you a blessing that God has already said you don't deserve. 
So he is going outside of God's plan to give his older son the blessing, his favorite son the blessing. So already we have some kind of scheming going on between Isaac and Esau. But the scheming doesn't stop with them because you notice Rebecca is kind of outside the door of the tent perhaps, kind of listening in on this conversation. And what she hears gives her an idea. She says, or I I imagine her saying, he can't give the blessing to Esau. The, The blessing is supposed to go to Jacob. I remember the oracle. God's oracle said that the older would serve the younger. And, and Jacob already has the birthright, so he also has to get the blessing. God, I don't know what you're doing here, but we need to kind of work this out. And this kind of thought process I picture going on in her mind. God, your plans are about to be thwarted. We're going to fix this. And so she calls Jacob and starts this plan, this scheme, that because of, because of Isaac's failing eyesight, because of his age, he may have had cataracts. I got this from our, our resident um, optometrist in training. He may have had cataracts. He may have had some sort of other degeneration in his eyes that would have caused him to go blind. We have, we have similar things today for, for people as they get up in years. And at this point, he's probably somewhere between 100 and 140 years old. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was, but he's getting up there in years. His eyesight's failing. And... Rebecca kind of picks up on this and says, he can't see. We we can trick him. We can get this blessing, Jacob, that you really deserve. We can get it outside of God's plan. We can make sure it happens. And so the, the story goes on. Jacob comes in multiple times. His dad asks him. You can tell that Isaac is very suspicious. Who are you, my son? Are you really Esau? He even says, how did you get the... How did you hunt that game and then fix it so quickly? You notice how Jacob pulls God into it? He says, God help me find it. So he uses God as a, as a covering for his sin. Continues to deceive his father multiple times. His dad keeps telling him to come closer, wanting, wanting this nearness, wanting to, to touch him to see if he feels like his son, wanting to smell his clothes But the only one of Isaac's senses that really seemed to pick up that there was something going on were his ears. He said, it sounds like the voice of Jacob. But instead, he trusts what he can feel. He can't see, so that sense is gone. He trusts what he can smell. And he ends up giving this blessing. And it's an extravagant blessing. This isn't just, okay, you're my son. You're going to be very prosperous. This this is over and above. He gives him lordship over all of his brothers. He gives him the fatness of the earth, the dew of heaven, plenty of grain and wine. He tells him basically the same blessing that Abraham got. Everyone who curses you is going to be cursed, and everyone who blesses you is going to be blessed. That's basically, if you have an enemy, God is going to destroy him. If you have an ally, God is going to bless them. I mean, that's a pretty extravagant, amazing blessing. And he blesses him so highly that when he actually finds out that he was blessing, in his mind, the wrong person, he has no blessing left for Esau. In fact, the blessing that he gives Esau is basically an anti-blessing. It's basically saying, everything that I blessed your brother, I'm going to give you the opposite. 
I gave him prosperity, you get none. I gave him lordship, you get none. So he gives this, the older brother, Esau, essentially an anti-blessing. There was no blessing there. And Esau despairs. Esau, you hear him weeping. You hear him exclaiming, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But this is all put on. This is all I want something to feed my own satisfaction. Because as soon as he doesn't get the blessing, this vengeance starts growing in his heart. This bitterness, this root of bitterness that Hebrews talks about and even points to Esau, is growing in his heart and saying, I'm going to kill my brother for what he did. So that's kind of a high-level walkthrough of the text, but let's, let's stop and look at some of the high mountain peaks along the way. Let's look at some of the patterns of dysfunction that are here that may be also in our lives, in our families. But first of all, you might be asking, why is the blessing important? Didn't, didn't Jacob already get the birthright? What's this blessing have to do with anything? Well, most historians think that in ancient Near Eastern world, both the birthright and the blessing were significant parts of determining who would receive the inheritance. The birthright typically had to do with land. And as Tim mentioned, it meant that they got double what all of their siblings got. But the blessing seemed to focus more on divine prosperity. It focused on dominion. And it focused on really just blessing. How, how would you be blessed in your life going forward? And this final oral blessing of the father, I read um, Ligon Duncan spoke on this. He said the final oral blessing of the father was often binding in judicial or legal proceedings so that if they were trying to determine who received an inheritance, if there was a witness, if someone could attest in any way that, that this final oral blessing had been given to a person, this would almost always carry in a court of law. So this is a very significant action that's going on here. And really often, especially other places in Genesis, you see the whole family being brought in. You see all of the brothers, you see maybe even the household servants being brought in for this big blessing ceremony. Instead, Esau is kind of doing this on the sly, doing it on the side, trying to, trying to circumvent what God had declared to be his plan. But some of these mountain top, some of these contours, the major um, components of dysfunction here. We see that in Isaac's aging, he has failing health. One aspect of living in a family is how we deal with changes due to health, due to aging. Isaac, in this case, appears to be totally blind and bedridden. You notice when both of the boys come in, they basically say, sit up so you can eat this food. And even though Esau probably lived for at least another 40 years, based on the the lifespan we have of him, he really thinks that this could be his last day on earth. I almost read into that that he has has a, a fear of death, a fear of what's coming. But what we do see clearly is that he had no vision. And while this is to set up the deception that's to follow based on him not seeing, I think there is some symbolism going on here too. Not only was he lacking in physical vision, But he had no spiritual vision. He was spiritually blind to seeing how God's plan was going to work out. So he was going a different way. 
another area of dysfunction here was that there was favoritism. Remember, right at the beginning, Jacob and Esau were born, and the text told us, and Rebekah loved Jacob, and um, Isaac loved Esau. But we see that perpetuated here. We see even as two grown men, the guys were over 40 years old and still living at home, still um, receiving things from their parents, but very much playing into this favoritism mode. The narrator even highlights this, referring to Esau multiple times as his son, Isaac's son, referring to Jacob as her son, Rebecca's son. And this points out to us the blatant favoritism, the preferential treatment that's going on. This imbalance of favor expressed by both parents really led them to the next level of dysfunction. And this next level totally pervaded the family, and that's their deception, their scheming, their manipulation. No one could trust anyone in this family. Sometimes we have this um, example, or, or we, we use the terminology, if, if there's a group of people and you're telling them a very important secret, you say, this is the circle of trust. We have this group of people, we all trust each other. This family, they have like a circle of mistrust. No one can trust anyone else because everyone's out to get something from someone else. And where most narratives in Genesis, I mentioned this earlier, include maybe one or two people talking. This has six different passages of dialogue, and each of them is with a different person, many of them behind someone else's back. So Isaac and, and um, Esau are off talking to each other privately. Well, Rebecca overhears that, and then she has her own private conversation. That's repeated multiple times. And like I said, these aren't little kids involved. It's not like 15-year-old um, Jacob is being told to go and and get some goats. This is 40, maybe 60, maybe 70-year-old Jacob going out and doing this. These are both adults, and they're involved in sustained lies with each other and with their parents. Let me say that relationships and families built around lies are in danger of massive collapse like this one if God and his truth don't intervene. And really, this is an area that everyone here, I think down to, down to the kids, you know what it is to lie. You know what it is when someone asks you a question and you're to give them a truthful response. You know when you twist the truth. You know when you give them an incomplete or an answer that leads them to believe something else. The Bible tells us that God hates lying. It's included among the Ten Commandments printed by God on stone tablets at Sinai. It should not be part of the life of a Christian because it is of the devil. He is the father of lies. So there's a serious integrity problem here. Ligon Duncan put it like this. He said, if we see Jacob as a deceiver, let me tell you, he learned it from some professionals. God is going to have to work long and hard on Jacob to get him rid of this integrity issue. And he learned it in his home. That strikes close, doesn't it? There are little eyes and little hearts watching us, and they will learn from what we do. That's Ligon Duncan. Let that be an application to us as parents. There are little hearts and little eyes watching us. They see the dysfunction in our lives, and they will emulate it in their lives, apart from the grace of God working. Another thing that happens in this passage is there's a pursuit of fleshly impulses. 
It starts with Isaac. Isaac wants his appetites satiated. He wants the food that he loves. And the word love there isn't the normal term that you'd use in Hebrew for liking a meal a lot. It's more of like a term that you'd use between people for a very personal relationship. So he's saying, I love this food. I have very strong affection for this food. Now Esau, you get it for me, and then I'm going to bless you for it. That pursuit of fleshly impulses, though, carried from father to son because Esau lived by what he wanted. He saw these two Hittite women at the end of Genesis 26, Judith and Basemath. He sees them. He marries them both. And they made life very bitter for his parents. Later on in his life, he goes and he marries again an Ishmaelite this time because he thinks maybe his parents will like him better if he marries someone else that's not a Hittite. So this, this structure of authority in the family was totally broken up as Esau just pursues his fleshly impulses. Pursuing the flesh and living the life of a fool, though, is sowing to the wind. And that's exactly what Esau reaped in the end. And then there's this hypocrisy going on. There's using religion or right actions as a covering for evil. Maybe that's a dysfunction in your family. Doing or saying something in order to sound more spiritual. In order to gain favor with your parents, maybe you do something in front of them that makes you think or makes them think that you're something. We see that a few times in this passage. Once we see Jacob using the name of God and his lie when Isaac asks how he was able to hunt and prepare this meal so quickly, it's really dangerous to bring God's name into your lies. Or later on, he tries to please others by marrying an Ishmaelite instead of a Hittite as his third wife. And he really does this, it seems, just simply to gain favor with his parents. Kids and adults, especially kids here, don't fake Christianity. Don't put on the garb of Christianity, pretending that you claim it for yourself. Don't live two lives, one that your parents know about and see, and another that they don't. But ask God to break into your heart rather than just clean yourself up a little bit on the outside to make people think you're okay. Because without that heart change, as a young person or as a teenager, you are totally bankrupt before God. He needs to change your heart by the gospel of his grace to transform you from the inside, not just polish you a little bit on the outside. And we see in this passage, I, I think this is a big one as we wrap up our first point, we see lasting consequences for sin. Lasting consequences for sin. Every sin has consequences that come with it. Some of our sins that maybe are, are more private, we may think this isn't hurting anybody, but every sin has consequences. And sadly, we rarely see or think about those consequences until we're in the middle of experiencing them. And perhaps as we read through this passage, we didn't even see yet the consequences of the deception that was going on. So let's read a little bit more now, starting in the verse we left off on. Genesis 27, verse 41. I think it's going to go back up on the screen. Genesis 27:41, And we're actually going to read into the beginning of 28. 
and watch for what the consequences of this sin are. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Basically, why should I lose both my sons in the same day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Speaking of Esau's wives, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Rebekah's in a state of despair at this point. Beginning of 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And do you know what? After that episode, Rebekah never saw Jacob again. Her favorite son, the one she had done all this scheming so he would get blessed, because of the scheming, she sends her son away never to see him again. He goes to Laban's, and we're going to see the story in coming weeks. He goes to Laban's house. Remember, he works basically in forced servitude for 20 years to get a wife. Well, during those 20 years, we have no evidence he ever came back home. We have no evidence Rebecca was ever able to go visit him. So he never sees his mom again. And instead of living in kind of comfortable setting with his parents, he goes off and does basically servant's work for 20 years. So on both sides, we see consequences, long-term consequences of sin. And I don't think consequences themselves should motivate us or, or demotivate us from sin. But they sure can help. We need the beauty of Christ to be bigger than our sins, but sometimes it's helpful to think through the potential consequences that a sin will bring. Because Satan is never going to tell us to think of those consequences when we're being tempted. I had a class last year called Pastoral Ethics. And one of the exercises in this class, I'd encourage it for you to think through in this same way. One of our exercises, we had to turn in this assignment, was to write down on paper what would be the results, what would be the consequences of falling into sexual sin as a pastor. And wrote down, like a three-page paper I think was required, how would it affect my family? How would it affect my ministry? How would it affect the, the woman or her family? And thinking through all of those details is, I mean, in one way, it's a, a terrible thing to think of, how much it would hurt the people I love. 
But at the same time, I think God can use sometimes those types of practices, thinking through what is the consequence of my sin. You see, in Scripture sometimes, pointing to the long-term consequences of sin, and rather than the, the fleeting pleasure of sin, pursuing Christ instead. Maybe God would use the consequences of our sin, or even thinking about what the consequences would be, to point us back to himself and the grace of the gospel when we're tempted. So, all of these forms of dysfunction, this, this family almost seems to be falling apart at the seams. What does the original audience see in this passage as they're about to enter the land promised by God? Why would Moses, he skipped a lot of Isaac's life already. Why would he include this chapter, this kind of low point in the family's history well, maybe it was to show them that even the patriarchs that they looked up to weren't perfect. Perhaps it was to show them that God had his hand in every aspect of bringing his plan of redemption to completion. And even sinful men could not stop God's plan. As one preacher put it, God will bring his promised redeemer, not from picture-perfect parentage, but from the offspring of a long line of sinners. So perhaps it would give hope to those who weren't yet picture-perfect parents themselves and for those of us today who are not either. But in addition, as hopeless as those circumstances seemed, either in Genesis 27 or in your own family situation, we need to see that God provides hope for the dysfunctional. And the hope for the dysfunctional instead of being a result of the fall, is a result of God's grace. Because though our dysfunction results from the fall, each of us are responsible for our sinful thoughts, our attitudes, our words, and our actions that create these non-functioning relationships. Our lives aren't supposed to operate this way, though. And if it weren't for grace, we would keep spiraling into deeper and deeper expressions of our depravity. The hope we have for our dysfunction doesn't come from inside of us. It doesn't come from more effort, that would be moralism, but from outside of us in the gospel. That we can never be good enough, but that Jesus was. So let's review our hope in our dysfunction by rehearsing the gospel. And this is really the most important thing to hear today. First of all, that Jesus came to earth as a man. And he was the most, if you can think of this term, he was the most functional man to ever live. He grew up as a boy in a home. He had earthly parents and he never sinned. He had brothers or you'd call them half-brothers and he never sinned against his siblings. He functioned in every way where we are dysfunctional. Where we lie, he always told the truth. Where we retaliate when we're wronged, he always took it. So Jesus came to earth and was the most functional person there ever was, never sinning. Also, we need to remember that Jesus died going to a cross for dysfunctional people and dysfunctional families. He came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. Jesus died for dysfunctional people. So if you are in that category and if you are in Christ, recognize and claim afresh today that he died for you and he died for the brokenness in your relationships 
And then third, that we are not stuck in this pattern of dysfunction, but Jesus, because he is risen and reigning, empowers us to live functional lives in our spheres, in our families, in our relationships. That's Christ living in and through us. And for some of you, your dysfunction may be something you carry from your past. Maybe from your family when you were growing up, something that was done to you or that you went through. That doesn't give us an excuse to live how we want, though, due to these parts of our past. But God's grace extends to even these issues. As God redeems our past, as God heals the hurts that we have of things that were done to us. And there's three aspects of hope in this final point, three aspects of hope for the original readers and then some gospel connections for us. The first aspect of hope is that divine sovereignty wins. And this is going to be very brief because I already mentioned it. But God's plan from the beginning was that the older would serve the younger. And even though um, Isaac tried to circumvent that, even though Rebecca tried to orchestrate that, God still made sure that it happened. We can't stop God from accomplishing his plan by our willful defiance. We don't need to help God out. We just need to be faithful in doing what he's already told us to do. And the gospel connection in that for us is that God's plan on the cross even included the sinful actions of men to accomplish his purpose. Think of the book of Acts Chapter 4, if, if you're thinking through and, and if you were to rate sins, and we really don't think that God puts sins on a scale, but arguably killing the Son of God would be one of the worst sins. I mean, if you were to put them on a, on a scale, killing the Son of God is pretty horrific. But that same act, that same horrific act was also a beautiful act of love and mercy that God had planned in order to redeem sinners and maintain perfect justice. So Acts 4 tells us that in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So there were sinners along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. They're sinners. They are wanting to carry out their sinful acts against the man Jesus. But then he continues in this message to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. And I wish I had longer to talk about this, but the gospel connection is that God used even this great sinful act of the crucifixion of the Son of God to accomplish his redemption of sinners. And he did the same thing in our passage. Divine sovereignty wins every time. The second gospel hope we see here is there is extravagant blessing without merit. Jacob was blessed even though he was deceptive. Even though he did everything to demerit his blessing, he was still blessed. And this might not seem fair to us. It might not seem fair that the guy who deceived gets this extravagant, abundant blessing. But remember that grace isn't given based on merit. In fact, it wouldn't be grace if it were. None of us could merit God's favor because we're all descended from Adam and we join in his rebellion against God. But that makes what we get from God absolutely of grace. And the gospel connection for us is there are extravagant, abundant blessings that flow out of the gospel. And there's many different facets we could look at here. The one I want us to consider is that God not only took 
our sins away through Christ's work on the cross, but he actively gave us Christ's perfect obedience. We sometimes refer to this as being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it's a truth I think we need to remind ourselves of often, that when God looks on us, he doesn't see us in our filthy rags. He sees us in a clean white robe of his sinless son. But I think that also ties into this text because think of what Jacob did. Jacob put on his brother's clothes. He put on some goat skins so he would look like his brother. So he basically put on an outfit that wasn't his to deceive his father for a blessing. But flip that around and Jesus wraps us in clothes that aren't ours, not to deceive his father, but to give us his blessing so we can be properly related to our father. So in a similar way, we are clothed in something that's not ours so that our father sees us and we're blessed. This is part of the extravagant blessing available to you because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And if, you're in good, and if you're in Christ, this is good news for you. And my third and final point on this is that redemption comes at great cost. Redemption comes at great cost. And all of the cost in this Old Testament passage is the result of human sinfulness. Even though God is working out his redemptive plan, there is great cost here. There is great pain of losing their sons. There is great personal anguish And we're still barely past a seed of God's Abrahamic blessing being fulfilled. We might have some some tiny green shoots coming out of the ground at this point. But we're wondering all along, are those green shoots going to survive? Because this family seems really, really messed up. Through Jacob? Really? We're going to send the Messiah through this guy, the deceiver? But in a passing comment during her scheming, Rebecca said something profound that I think again points us freshly to the gospel. And for this, I'm going to use the words of Ian Duguid. He said, Jesus took the path he took. This is his path to the cross, not in order to steal someone else's blessing for himself, but rather to take upon himself our curse. In the most awesome reversal of all, Jesus would graciously say to us what Rebecca rashly said to her son. She said, let the curse fall on me, if you're found out in this deception, Jacob. Think about that statement. The words Rebecca said so carelessly, never thinking that they might come true, Jesus also said to us, even though he knew the full depths of what he was saying, Jesus took your curse so that you might inherit his blessing. The curse that Jacob deserved for his trickery, the curse that you and I earn for ourselves every day by our sinfulness was laid upon him, upon Christ, so that the blessing that was rightfully his might be given to us, his undeserving people. I want us to think about the area that God may be putting his finger on in your family or in your life, areas where you don't relate well to others, areas where there's indwelling sin that hasn't been repented of in your life, your home, your family situation, What did God put his finger on? As you think about that area, ask, where is the grace in the gospel that I need? First of all, realize no matter what's been done to you or no matter what you have done, because of Christ, you don't need to live in condemnation. This doesn't mean wallowing in your sin or continuing in it, 
but it means living in ongoing repentance, continuing to turn from your sin and depend on the Spirit's work of transformation. Like the Tim Chester book that the group will be studying, you can change through the work of the Spirit because of the gospel. So as we close, we see that all three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant were passed on to Jacob. In the passage I just read earlier, he says, God Almighty bless you, that you might become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and take possession of the land. So we have land, we have seed or nation, and we have blessing. Those are all the aspects of the covenant that were passed on from Isaac to his son Jacob. And then Hebrews 11 kind of wraps this up for us. Hebrews 11 is the bow on this package because that's where we get the always inspired commentary. And it's a very short verse. Verse 20 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. It's not the several verses that Abraham gets. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This tells us that even though Isaac's blessing was misdirected, that it was done in faith and that God saw it as such. What abundant grace for Isaac. One person said that although his faith was mistaken in its direction, it was solid in its heart. Although he was wrong in the one he sought to bless, he was profoundly right in believing that there was a blessing to be transmitted. He believed God that one day the promise delivered through Abraham would bear fruit in the lives of his descendants. And it's in those terms he gave his blessing. There is no such thing as a perfect family. I think we are all in some way testaments to that. But by the grace of God, our families can and should increasingly reflect the power of the gospel. As we're transformed not to be shaped by our sin struggles, not to be shaped by the patterns of the world, but rather by the work of Jesus' life in us. And that's my prayer for every dysfunctional family. That today would be a major step of recognizing where we're at through the Spirit's conviction and that God would continue working in our hearts to reflect our Savior. Let's pray.